and welcome to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast, where we have just witnessed Sasha Zverev defending his title here in Washington, defeating a fellow next-genner, Alex de Menor, in the showpiece to claim a ninth career tour title. We, as ever, have an action-packed show coming up for you in what has been an action-packed week. We will hear from Sasha Zverev about what it was like to play his brother earlier this week. We will also get players' views on the new shot clock and hear from Andy Murray, who brilliantly returned to hardcore tennis this week. But first, let's recap what happened in the final. Pete Rogers here to talk you through this podcast. But joining me, thankfully, is Naomi Cavadain. It was a final that didn't quite live up to what the expectations of the tennis that we saw previously from Alex de Menor, perhaps a little fatigued from his previous round against Andre Rublev, but still so impressive from Sasha Zverev. Yeah, it was a little disappointing that the final f fell ever so slightly flat, but uh, completely understandable. And I mean, Zverev has been in a similar situation when you've just given everything to get through to the final. It's such a quick turnaround, having been playing the night before in that epic match, match points down, it, emotions, intensity, the, the physicality of it all. This is new ground really for Diminor and uh, the fatigue to have that going into the final, where actually you need to match the level you've been playing, if not better it, to stand a chance against somebody as good as and ex as experienced as Sasha Zverev. It was just a bit of a combination of um, some tricky stuff for, for Diminor, but he gave it his best. But Zverev was just awesome through the whole tournament. Just looked great, just looked so comfortable, barely breaking sweat a lot of the time, um, really. I mean, just boosting shots all over the place, big flat strikes, injecting pace. Uh, this very much was his title from the beginning, as long as he could maintain his level, which he did. Yeah, and he, uh, of course, worked with Ivan Lendl a couple of weeks ago. He's been hitting the ball harder. For you, is he definitely going in the right direction? Is he, do is he making the changes that, that you think will lead him to perhaps that Grand Slam title that has been so elusive so far. Yeah, I think so. He's uh, definitely further up the court as well. He's playing right up on the baseline, which is really good. Sometimes he does drift back and, and opts to just, just hang out there because he knows he can hit winners from anywhere on the court. Uh, but actually looking to get onto the front foot, it kind of changes the whole attitude of his game. He's really taking it to the opponents, just, just taking charge, not getting knocked off balance off of the baseline at all. Um, big injections of pace, as I say, like really enjoying you know one whippy forehand with height and shape and spin dipping down using the width really getting the kick off the court and then bang big flat backhand cross court into the space like a bullet um, there's really nice variation great balance of play but ultimately playing more aggressively and that's how you're going to win a slam he uh, won the match 6-2 6-4 Alex de Menor though had that brutal encounter in the semi-finals where he, he saved four match points 6-2 down in the second set tiebreak to then win it in nearly three hours 6-4 in the deciding set what about him I mean I suppose we shouldn't look too much into the final and how he performed because there, was, there were many times weren't there where he was th slapping his thigh and you could see he was just getting frustrated because he had very little left in the tank but in terms of his performance throughout the week what will he take from it? Yeah, well, I mean, his his fatigue in the final, all it did was just knock 10% off of his sharpness, and, and that just filtered into all of his game. You know, the first step and contact points a little late, and it just it, it got in himself into a bit of a mess, really. Uh, but through the week, he's been sensational. I mean, what a fantastic attitude. It's been an absolute pleasure to watch him fight and battle and channel his inner Leighton Hewitt, who has been such a role model of his and has been involved in his tennis for, for some time. It's... Uh, 
you know, he, he just was scrapping and fighting. I mean, he was playing brilliant tennis, don't get me wrong, but uh, to be match points down and to just stand up and compete against somebody like Rublev, who put in two great first serves, um, you know, he put in a couple of aces himself, did did Dimonor, just the attitude, he just won't just won't quit. He loves the fact that, that a tennis match is, is never ending. It's not over until it's over. He, he relishes that. He's constantly trying to figure things out and, and work out a way that how he can get through it, no matter what situation he is in. And it's remarkable. You mentioned there that he's down 10%. And do you think for someone like him, he's only five foot 11, doesn't have any major weapons, nothing that can really hurt opponents. So when he loses 10%, is that almost a bigger effect on his game than it would be, say, on a John Isner. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're if you're John Isner, you, you just just pop in some serves and, and you're going to get games on the board which makes you feel a lot better and it can I mean I've seen John Isner play terrible sets and win them frequently because his serve is keeping them in, in it and then he just wins at the right time and, and there are other players like that and even Zverev has been like that to an extent he has such a big game with so many weapons for Diminor it, it's hard work I mean he really just he barely got any cheap points off of his serve today I know Zverev is one of the best returners out there but you know he just desperately needed one cheap point against game just to get him going in the right direction and help out his service games but as it was he was constantly in the rally constantly having to work hard and just launch himself through the balls so his game is is a game of work it's it's a game of fight and spirit physicality mental focus wearing people down out maneuvering opponents creating spaces which takes time it takes shots to create spaces against somebody who moves as well as Sasha Zverev so you need three or four shots to get that space to get yourself inside the baseline to hit through him but he didn't get that opportunity because before he got to that number four shot uh, Zverev had, had fired in a winner or fired in pace of his own or or, or Dimonor had put in an unforced error because he was trying so hard so um, he didn't have the luxury of time to build and, and construct his points and, and and that was because of the lack of 10%. So as you say, it shows up so much more with somebody like that. It shows up so much more against someone who is turning into a regular winner on the ATP World Tour. And that person is Sasha Zverev. He became the, the first person to defend his title here in Washington since Juan Martin Del Potro did it in 08 and 09. And this is what the German had to say after his win. Obviously, I played very well throughout the whole tournament uh, from start to finish. So. I'm very happy how it went, and uh, you know, obviously in the final as well, Alex played uh, Alex played great, but um, you know, I was I was feeling the ball well. And in a special year, the 50th anniversary, a new trophy for you this year, playing your brother as well, couldn't have gone much better, could it? It was a special week, definitely. Uh, the 50th anniversary to start with, and the new trophy, and then you know, obviously the, the highlight was playing my brother. Playing my brother for the first time was was absolutely amazing. The match was great as well. So uh, hopefully, hopefully this experience will happen again. And you impress so many people, not only in the stadium, but watching at home with a high level of play. Are you playing near to your best, you believe? Yeah, sure. I mean, I lost only one set this week against very tough opponents. So I feel like I, I'm playing well. Um, obviously, I want to keep up the same way in Toronto. Heading to Toronto, defend your Rogers Cup crown. must be sky high with confidence. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not going to be an easy week. Obviously, a lot of great players at the Masters. Um, but, you know, I, I feel well. I'm going to take a lot of positive from this and, uh, and then we'll see how it goes. The views there of the now two-time champion Sasha Zverev. And Nomi, it was a special occasion for Sasha Zverev earlier in the week when he played his brother, Misha, on tour for the first time. Well, I think very special for both of us. Um, you know, it's you, not a lot of brothers can say they've played on one of the biggest tournaments in the world. So, um, together against each other. So, you know, it's it's great. We've, we've worked so hard for 
you know, to be able to play on tour, to be able to play the biggest tournaments and, you know, playing against each other was, was I think, a special moment. I mean, very emotional. Um, I've said it before that, you know, after the coin toss, we took, we took the picture together and then walked back to the base and I actually felt very emotional. I was like, I had to fight my tears because I felt like this is very unique. This is what we, uh, what we were training for. This is what we were aiming for. We were very little, like, playing in the in the backyard and imagine we play this big, <laughs> uh, big crazy match against each other and then here we are, you know, playing against each other in Washington at a 500 event and um, it, was, it came, you know, a dream came true. In match itself, did you just have to kind of block that out of your heads and just treat it like any other match or was it just different? Of course I think it was different, I think the feeling was, was different but, um, you know, at the end of the day I think you know, we both wanted to win, I think we both uh, tried, tried our best, I think we played some great tennis actually, I think we, you know, we, we played <laughs> Almost as well as we we always practice. I mean, we this is this is this is uh, our usual you know daily daily routine. This is how we play, and um, you know it was, it was great fun out there. And I hope uh, you know all, everybody else enjoyed it, enjoyed it as well. And to add to the drama, there was a, a long wait with the rain delays. Did yeah. that just build up the tension even more? Um, to be honest, I was very relaxed because you know waking up this morning, it felt like it's going to be a win-win situation no matter what. So. Um, I just felt like it's going to be good there. I was just hoping that I will be able to play well and keep up with him, and that's that's all <laughs> I worried about. And then as you know, as the match started, I felt like, okay, you know, today's not a bad day. I'm, I'm actually feeling the ball okay. Uh, I was actually very relaxed and I was enjoying myself. And to round things off, you then went out there again a moment yeah, later yeah. and completed a doubles match, which you won. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, it was the first time beating uh, beating those guys, and you know they're ranked number one, I think, right now in the race. And um, Pavic, I think, is ranked also number one in the world. No, is he number one? Mike is. Mike, Mike is, is, but, but he was two. he was number one not too long ago. So um, I think it was a great doubles match that we had starting yesterday and finishing off today. So it was overall a great day. Yeah, really nice to hear that one. And of course, it was uh, Sasha Zverev who came through that encounter 6 3 7 5. It was a little tougher than he, he was perhaps expecting. They had to save a set point in the second set. That was a third round matchup for the two Germans. But uh, fascinating there, Naomi, saying that he uh, used to, to play in the backyard with his brother. Is that something you used to do? You've got a brother who played very <laughs> a very decent level of tennis. Did you have fights and squabbles? How was it? Um, uh, did we play in the backyard? Oh, we used to play against the wall in the living room. That was... Uh, we got in trouble <laughs> How big is your living room? <laughs> we just with a sponge ball. We had to avoid the, the pictures that were hanging because we weren't allowed to take them <laughs> down. So we just had to hit either side of it. So our accuracy was That was your excellent. precision. That was how you got... <laughs> Exactly. I like it. But it, it is so nice to have um, a sparring partner. And, and you actually see it in, in so many ways. It, it's rare that, that both players are in the top 50. And, and uh, Sasha Zverev consistently talks about what, what a phenomenal job his dad, Alex Zverev Sr., has done um, with two players, uh, with two of his sons. But in so many families of the top players that they will have a sibling probably an older one uh, that was of a very high level um, but maybe didn't quite get there or, or whatever it is it's, it's a very common thing because I think just having a sparring partner having somebody to talk to about it and also having somebody a few years older than you that can make all of the mistakes <laughs> that you can then learn from <laughs> and you can get it all right the next time it's uh, um, you know, it, it does it does really help but they're just great together and I love the way they played the match because I, I think it'd just be a really difficult thing to do but they just embraced it they just said well this is going to be a lot of fun isn't it let's just give it a crack and play um, and, and, and see what happens. It's inevitable that if they're playing the same tournaments week in, week out, they'll play at some point. Yeah, he had to feel for the father as well, who, uh, who, who has said he's the best coach in the world, but he didn't sit and watch it. He just said, you guys fight it out. I'm not going to sit because yeah. who'd you cheer on? He's going to be constantly clapping as well. I mean, it would have been tiring for him. 
Anyway, there's been plenty of talking points, as I say, here in Washington. And another one of those talking points has been the shot clock for serving and also for warm-ups. Warm um, we spoke to Sasha Zverev again, as well as Kane Ishikori, Kyle Edmund, and first John Isner, who gave their views on the new innovation. Look, I think it's a, a good thing. Um, we'll see. I've never played with the shot clock on before. I've been known to be a little bit slow. I'm a big guy. Look, i got to take my time. But, look, this has... The world evolves, and as our, our spectators evolve, our game needs to evolve as well. So um, the shorter warm-up time, I think, is, is very cool. You need to keep the fans engaged, and something like a shot clock, that can keep them engaged as well. So I don't know if there's been any violations yet. You see it in basketball all the time, shot clock violation. It would be very cool to, you know, the first shot clock, serve clock violation happen in tennis. It's going to happen eventually. Maybe it's a record you don't want to have. Perhaps. No, yeah, <laughs> but it'll, look, I might just test it out just to see what it sounds like. Look, I think it's it's good to the ATP is trying to to improve our tour and trying to find ways to to make it a little more interesting and yeah, make it better. Um, I think the shot clock will be interesting how players will react to it, but I'm excited to try it out. Um, you know, the the warm up time, I'm not sure sure of, but um, you know. It, It'll be interesting to see what the players' reaction will be in the next uh, few weeks. Yeah, I think uh, it's good, good for tennis, but uh, might be tough for you know some someone, you know, have take take some time, you know, between the points, and might be tough for the players, especially with this weather. But uh, we'll, we'll see what's going to happen. The warm up we've well, I've done for a, f a little bit of time now with uh, the Grand Slams, so you sort of get used to that. It's not actually really a problem. But yeah, I mean, the shot clock will be interesting. I've not played with a shot clock, so it'll be my first time. I think historically, I'm generally okay. A few times I've been told by umpires to sort of quicken up, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, in one way, it's good to know that you're dealing facts. Um, obviously, stops the, the slower players to, to speed up. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it works. I've just got to try and gauge as much as possible and see what happens, but... Um, yeah, it's a tough one to really know what, what to make of it. I think even when there wasn't a shot clock there, you try and play within 25 seconds because those are 20 seconds because those are the rules anyway. So it, it shouldn't be too much of a problem, I don't think. Yeah, that was Carl uh, Edmund at the end there talking about the, the shot clock. Of course, they get 25 seconds and they've the innovation is that you can see the clock and the, the umpire starts it, but he can start it at his own discretion. So it's it basically started when the crowd noise has died down. So what that means is that if there is a phenomenal point, the players do get a little more time in between the points. There's also the clock before they sit down. So they need they have a minute to walk on court and be ready at the net by the time the last person comes onto the court, so the second player. Um, and then they have a minute once the five minutes is up from the warm-up to be ready to serve or return. But for those two, so not the shot clock, for those two innovations, they would just get a fine if they are late. But so far this week, it's worked very well. We haven't seen anyone get fined. We have seen one player get penalised for the 25 seconds. Well, at least what I've seen, only one player get penalised. And he didn't argue, which was good. There was a case, though, Naomi, and you were just saying this to me off-air, Carl Edmund there was talking about it and there was a time when he played a brutal rally against Andy Murray and we actually felt it helped him because 
you could see he was struggling for air and he ended up getting to the baseline and you could see he just looked up and thought, oh, I've got 10 extra seconds here. Yeah. So he actually just took his time and, and, and took more air in. Would you have liked the shot clock when you played? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a fan of it, absolutely. But I, I don't... I, I'm going to be really interested to see, once we've maybe done a full year of it, be really interested to see the numbers of has it actually sped up play? Has it been about the same? Or has it actually slowed it down? Because I think it'll be different for different players. And as you say, at different times in the match as well. Um, because sometimes it is, it, it, it's, uh, it's nice to know that actually you've got, you've got time and, uh, and you can use that time. Uh, and I think when we, when we fir very first saw it in Milan last year at the Next Gen Finals, I felt the first match, everybody was panicking. They just came out and were just being so <laughs> rushed and so quick. We've got a shot clock, we've got to go. We've got to like, get ready, get to the baseline and play. Uh, and then they realised they were taking about five seconds. <laughs> and then they suddenly kind of slowed down and, and everybody kind of got into it. And, uh, and I, I, th I think absolutely it, it can work both ways. Um, but again, it's, it's the discretion with, with the umpire. And um, I think a good way to look at it with the umpires, if you, if you follow kind of how they call the score, then you'll get an idea as to when they'll be um, starting the shot clock. If somebody hits an ace, they call the score straight away. It's just, it's 15 love. As soon as that ace goes past you, it's just the point's done. Um, um, and that is when they're going to be tapping it on their screen saying shot clock will start. And as you say, if there's a long point and if there is a big crowd reaction, then uh, then umpires here will take a little bit longer, let the applause die down, then call the score. So that's the sort of thing that you can kind of follow with the umpires to get an idea as to when they're starting the shot clock. Um, because uh, it will be different through the match and uh, with various different points. But that, I mean, that's how I, if I was an umpire, that's how I would kind of do it. Because you can see you know, they call scores at different times, don't they? They try and make it appropriate. And I think it's a similar sort of thing. Yeah, the, the, the one worry it felt from players, because generally their feedback's been very positive. Andy Murray said it, it's helped yeah. me and it, it, he likes the clarity. Um, but the one worry, of course, you mentioned Milan. There was a lot of cramping in Milan, but that was a different scoring format. But people were worried that the stress of the shot clock was going to bring in some more cramping. But we haven't seen that here. Would you like to see any more innovations added on top of what we've had this week? Oh, yeah. I, I, I think we're in a really exciting phase within tennis. Uh, I think the ATP is doing a fantastic job uh, trying different things. I mean, you just look at the next-gen finals, and uh, I'm sure that uh, all four of these players, including Sasha Zverev, has has benefited from those next-gen finals being in place because that was a real driving force for him next last year because he didn't want to play it. He wanted to be too good for it. Um, and I think that um, so much uh, of what's happening at the moment in, in the, the last 12 months, all of the exciting plans ahead, uh, it's a really good time. You've got to try things. And, and if you try it for a year and it doesn't work, then fine, scrap it and, and try something different. And it is great that they're trying something different here at the, uh, the US Open Series and at this event, which is in his fifth 50th anniversary and Seb Lozier has been taking a closer look at the development of the event as it celebrates that significant milestone. It's a happy 50th birthday to the City Open in Washington and as the celebrations reached their conclusion I sat down with co-founder and legendary tennis administrator Donald Dell and we started by talking about legacy. Well I think the legacy among other things is it's really brought uh, outstanding international tennis to the city of Washington into a public park in a facility that's a very informal environment, very diverse group of people and players. And uh, we just had some tremendous matches year after year because the weather's been so hot and, and it's hard, it's very competitive. And I think the players, I mean, for example, Connor's always wanted to play early. He wanted to play in the sun. He, he felt he had an edge. And some do and some don't. It just depends on 
how they feel. But the tournament itself had just grown like topsy over the years. I mean, today we're in 187 countries in television. And we're in 140 hours of live television domestically with the Tennis Channel. I never dreamed that uh, in 1969 when we had a you know, clay court here and no locker rooms and no showers. And we were changing in tents. And we had no seats and no stands. And then we built the stadium in 89. And we're refurbishing it next year and, and upgrading it. So it's just been a, it's been a long history of really of growth and getting bigger and bigger. But I think there's a in, I think there's a very informal, casual attitude. People all walk around here. They talk to players that are practicing. They get autographs. You can't do that at the slams. It's too big. And they got bodyguards walking with the players naturally from the locker room to the courts. That's not what we do here. And so a, a person can get a photograph or an autograph with any leading player if they wait outside the door where he's coming out to walk down to the press or coming back. And I, I think that really has uh, created an atmosphere of friend, friendliness and informality. Washington has seen some great champions over the years. Well, if you looked up on that uh, on the awning there on the center court, we list all the winners and by year, and the names are phenomenal. Uh, Arthur, for example, Ash played 11 times, only won it once in 1973. Noah won it, Lendl won it, Ed Berg. Uh, it goes on and on. Agassi won it five times. Uh, Andy Roddick won it three times. Del Potro is a great player, was tremendous in the last uh, decade, won it four times. So we've had phenomenal uh, name winners of people who have gone on to win the Open, who have won Wimbledon, have all played here over the years. And that's been really one of the funs for me to see the great champions who have played elsewhere win here. So what does the future hold? Well, I think it'll continue to grow. We brought the women in uh, about seven years ago. The sponsor of the City Open uh, said, you know, 49% of their clients were women. They wanted a women's tournament, so we started that a few years ago. That's grown like crazy. We built a second stadium on the backside there, grandstand number two. Uh, it's now named the John Harris Grandstand after one of the co-founders with me. And that's where a lot of the matches are played for the women. And I think that's going to grow uh, and make it a, a stronger combined event. And we're going to next year, we're going to come in and try to put in six more practice courts for the players. And we're going to enlarge the locker room facilities downstairs for the players. So that every year we spend more money trying to build a better event and a better facility. And I think the stadium is the, is the next attack. I mean, we've got to upgrade some of the stadium and make it uh, more competitive for other events around the world. One of the first professional sports agents, Dell represented many top tennis pros, among them Arthur Ashe. So what would his former client make of the event? I think he'd be very proud. Uh, I think he said to me when we started, he said, look, Dell, I really would like to see a lot of black faces in the crowd, which is why we picked this facility, uh, this area, the park. And he said, if that happens, I'll play, uh, I'll support the tournament play. He played 11 times. So he kept his end of the bargain. And if you see the audience out there, it's a very diverse group of people, all shapes, sizes, and colors. And I think that would have made him very, very pleased and very proud. And it's not just about the event itself. This is the only nonprofit owner 
of a major tournament. It's a 500 series event. There are 13 of them in the world. This is a combined event, and the only person uh, that owns it is not me. Uh, we work for the, a nonprofit group called the Washington Tennis and Education Foundation. They've been the owner since 1972. When I gave them the sanction and the date, we had created the event in 69, and they took it over in 72. And it's very unusual to have a, a charity you know, running the tournament. So if the profits are successful, and we do a good job, it goes back into junior tennis in the Washington area. They run tennis programs for kids as young as three years old at two different facilities, one here and one in southeast Washington, which is way, way downtown, which is where a lot of the kids are going to school. And so it's been a terrific uh, really a, a fun challenge for me to make it successful for all those kids that have followed from the from the programs yeah that was donald dell the co-founder of this tournament which is in its 50th year and it's had some big time winners in those 50 years naomi the likes of guillermo villas and jimmy connors Andre Agassi, Stefan Edberg. Agassi's, of course, won it five times. Del Potro twice. Del Potro was the last man to defend the title, 08-09. 50 years, though, the tournament's been running for. Arthur Ashe was another player that I forgot to mention who, who won it very in the early phases of, of the tournament. 50 years on, what do you think will be looking different? Let's look into the future. What do you think will happen if, if, if 50 years... We had some innovations this year. Will, will the tennis landscape have changed that much? Um, I think... I think it may be. I, I think we're definitely in a time of change, and I think that's filtering into all different events. I think this event does have to grow. You've got to keep up with uh, the demand and, and what's happening. But you know, he was just the talking there about adding in the women's event and and, uh, and and growing things. And of course, you forgot in terms of the former champions, Leighton Hewitt. We have uh, Dimonor playing, and uh, Hewitt being a, such an idol of his. Um, but um, I mean, ultimately, tennis is at the core and at the heart of everything that happens in the tour through the year, and that is just improving at such a rapid pace. I mean, really, I mean, you look back at things from you know, 15, 20 years ago, the, the, these players are just getting stronger uh, and bigger and better. Um, and there, there was a phase where a lot of it was down to the technology because that was improving so rapidly, but now it's the physicality that is improving so rapidly and it's just affecting the sport in such a positive way. Um, so hopefully all of the tournaments will try and keep up with uh, the new style uh, of tennis. And I think they need to, a lot of them need to make their stadium courts bigger because so many players are playing wider and deeper on the courts. Well, bigger was the word I was going to pick up on in, in your answers. I thought when you were going to say 50 years time from now, of course, the average player size is getting bigger and bigger yeah. as well. Six foot six, it seems like that's, that's the in vogue size to play. So it I is. just wonder in 50 years time whether you were going to say, I reckon the courts will be bigger, but but maybe not. Maybe maybe those dimensions will never change. Uh, <laughs> I think it'd be quite interesting to uh, to throw a tournament in there during the year where we do have d different dimensions. Just you know, put the net up a little higher and <laughs> see see who who wins out. Um, but uh, I think uh, yeah, uh, the players are getting taller and, and more physical. You know that's for sure. Um, I I do think that we are seeing more and more slight issues at the back of courts with uh, boardings and lines judges. Um, I mean, there's an argument to say whatever space you give them, they'll use. Uh, but, you know, if, even at the slam, some of the huge, huge um, stadium courts uh, are not even big enough. Uh, so I think definitely make them a little wider, a little deeper, and that will uh, allow the physicality to just keep growing and keep getting stronger.
The views there of Naomi Cavaday, and that's the adjustments that the tournaments can make, and possibly that Naomi Cavaday would make in the next 50 years. But how about the adjustments for Andy Murray, returning to hardcourt tennis for the first time in a long time? Obviously, you know, I've had a bit of time to, to work on some things, um, try and make some improvements on the stuff that in the matches that I did play during the grass that, you know, I didn't feel like I did particularly well. I've been, been trying to improve on that, worked a lot on my serve, and um, I feel like I'm moving a little bit better around the court just because I'm a bit sharper, um, and that's that's really positive for my game. Uh, you played played Queens and played some grass court warm-ups, but you, had to, you decided to skip Wimbledon. How tough was that decision for you? Yeah, it was tough. Obviously, you know, Wimbledon's a huge competition for for me. Obviously, coming from the UK as well, probably made it a, a little bit harder. But it was, you know, it was the right decision. I think at the time, I I, I didn't feel like I was quite ready to play five set matches. I, I'd got, you know, a few three setters un, under my belt and in, in the build up. But you know, I, I just I just didn't feel like I was I was quite ready. But I, you know, I trained all through Wimbledon. I was practicing on the hard courts from the, the Monday of the tournament starting, and you know, really wanted to build up for this um, you know, American summer and hopefully um, you know, get, get fit and ready for the US Open. It's been a while since you got to enjoy Wimbledon as a spectator. Uh, how'd you enjoy uh, taking it in without the, the pressures of the tournament? I, I didn't watch loads of it. Obviously, I, I, I did a bit of commentating and the, the match I got to watch was a brilliant match between Nadal and Del Potro. Um, I saw some of the um, the, the Nadal Djokovic match as well, which is obviously you know another another great great match. But um, I, I was all right once I'd, I kind of made my decision. I'd done as much as I could to, to try to get ready, and you know I wasn't actually too. I didn't find it that that difficult watching, um, and you know quite in, quite enjoyed doing you know the, the little bits of commentary that I did as well. So it was it was all good. And the commentary is that something. You said you enjoyed it. Is that something you could see yourself doing uh, in the future? I don't think so. Um, I I enjoyed it for that one that 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 one match, and it ended up being a, obviously it was a brilliant match uh, to to do as well. But um, no, I, I don't think it's something that I would do kind of long term when when I finish playing. Uh, obviously, Novak had an unreal tournament. You guys were both out struggling with injuries. Seeing kind of the way he's come back, has that given you any extra motivation or confidence that? You could possibly do the same. Um, two completely different injuries um, and significantly different periods out of the game. So it's it's not easy to, I don't know, look at his situation and, and compare myself to that. But you know, I think more because of the guys around the top of the game just now in terms of their age and everything. That you know, it seems like guys have been able to do a little bit better into their sort of early mid mid thirties. So. That gives me, you know, a bit more confidence that, you know, if I can get myself in, in good shape again, um, you know, that the that my level will, will be good enough to, to allow me to compete for for the big competitions again. So, obviously, what all those guys are doing up at the the top of the game gives you, you know, motivation um, to to try and get back up there. But um, you know, it's, it's going to take some time. Seem pretty relaxed, having some fun on this kind of journey back up. Is it important to keep that that frame of mind for you? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of both. Obviously, I want to enjoy kind of being back on the tour again, but you know, the the serious part of obviously winning matches and stuff is is the you know is the most important thing. If I'm out here like losing first round every single week, um, you know, I'm not going to enjoy that as much. So, as so long as I get all the practicing and preparation done properly, I'm, you know, I want to try and enjoy you know the, these next few years on tour whilst I'm still playing. At any point during 
uh, that injury timeout, did you consider hanging up rackets or was that out of the question for you? It, it wasn't so much thinking about like hanging the rackets up. I mean, I've always planned and wanted to, to come back. It's just you do think about like what if I can't come back or what if what if this is the end and kind of think about what you're going to do with yourself you know this is kind of I've been playing tennis for my whole life um, obviously my whole professional life this is all I've kind of known so it'd be, it'd be quite a big change um, when when I do stop but um, you know I always felt like I'd be able to, to come back. You're working your way back up but how does that mindset change versus being at the top of the game? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's obviously not where I'd want to be ranking-wise, but, um, you know, the good thing is, like, when you're right up at the top of the game, it's, like, it's not easy just to move up one spot. Like, now, like, if I win a couple of matches here, I could move up 300, 400 spots in a week, which is uh, which is nice. So, hopefully um, hopefully I can get back up there um, quickly, but it, yeah, it sort of feels like I'm kind of starting from scratch again, um, you know, and obviously not been in that position since I was kind of 18. So I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be hard, but it should be fun. Now being back here on tour, uh, give you a little uh, better appreciation after being out all this time for some of the various aspects of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I realised kind of how much I loved the, the sport, obviously being out for such a long time, but I never, I never had an issue with like any of the travelling or airports and hotels and stuff. I've always really enjoyed that that part of it. That was something I actually missed, and um, yeah, happy to be back on on the road again. And hopefully, it continues for for a while. And further ahead to the North American, the rest of this hardcore swing. What are those expectations, or have you set any specific goals? To stay healthy. Uh, that that's kind of it just now. And if if I do that, and kind of get the, the match fitness back I'm hoping that kind of more towards the end of the year and beginning of 2019 um, I'll be feeling feeling more like my, my old self and um, set myself up for a good year in, in 2019. Andy Murray speaking there at the start of the Rogers Cup. Naomi great to see Andy Murray back. What did you make of his performances? I mean there were three marathon matches in a row. Tennis wasn't quite to the standard that he wanted it to be but everything else was quite phenomenal. Well, he just can't not fight, can he? He just doesn't have it in him. He doesn't have taking the easy option. It's just not in his makeup at all, no matter how much pain he might be in or that we saw last year. We remember watching him at Wimbledon in so much pain, just desperately trying as hard as he could. He just loves to compete. He loves the challenge. He wants to be out there. It was so emotional when he, when he was winning these matches and, uh, you know, tough matches you know as you say it's not his best tennis it's, it's not even close to his best tennis which is which is the good news um but just to see him loving being out on court being motivated getting back-to-back -back wins because it's difficult because for him to get back to his best he has to get back-to-back -back wins quite regularly and it's tough to do that when you're not at your best and you're playing against really good players you get into this really rough cycle you know we can see somebody like Stan Wawrinka is really stuck in that at the moment um and uh, so it's it, this is so important for him this is so important for him and his comeback this is a a big kind of propelling forward situation for Murray um, and uh, but just I mean 
to be honest, forget about the tennis, forget about anything else. He was just, it was emotional, it was brilliant. I mean, he was crying, I was welling up. I think everybody <laughs> was just so thrilled uh, to have him back. Yeah, and I was fortunate enough to commentate on his for all of his matches, in fact, in the first two in particular, that was what we just kept saying. He is loving it. Even, even the points he lost, you could just see he was <laughs> absolutely loving fighting again with someone, getting annoyed with his coaching team. It was just back to Andy Murray at his blissful best on a court, just being that fierce competitor that he is. Of course, at the end of his final match that he played before withdrawing against Marius Koppel, he showed all that release of emotion and was on court crying for quite a while. What did you make of that and why do you think that happened? I think it was probably a combination of, uh, of a bit of fatigue, uh, relief. Um, I think I don't think he has been entirely convinced that he can actually do what he wants to do and get back up right up to the top of the game. I, I think he, he thinks that it's possible, but, you know, his body is out of his control. I mean, he can only do so much rehab and, and, and whatever surgeries are needed and everything. that he's, he's clearly trying everything. There is no stone unturned. Um, but I, I think there may have been a little bit of a realisation of actually my body might be able to do this. this. This actually, this might work out, you know, because all he can do is try and, and see. And of course he's going to do that. And I think that was probably part of the emotion as well. Um, and I think he was just shattered. There was just epic matches and he just had to fight so hard. And as you say, he I clearly just hadn't been shouting at anyone for the best part of nine <laughs> months. I'm sure he'd missed it because as you say, that that would, that hadn't got anywhere. He still had a, a, quite the knack for, <laughs> for the chuntering as we've seen him at the back of the court. But... Uh, uh, I think think the emotions come just from a really good place. I think a combination of, of fatigue and, and real relief is what I was seeing on his face. Yes, yeah, certainly He's understand. Back. Certainly understand him being tired. I mean, nine hours on court he spent uh, in three days. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 my personal view, and it was exactly that. I just think it was just sheer exhaustion, but also sheer happiness because to get through nine hours and three days, I mean, he did look tired towards the end of that match against Marius Koppel. He wasn't moving quite as well, but it didn't look like an injured yeah. not moving quite as well it looked like a, a fatigued and tired haven't been doing this this sort of level with this sort of intensity for a fair while with that in mind he then withdrew from the tournament and then also withdrew from the rogers cup right decision i think so um i i think it, it is the right decision he knows his body he is on on the comeback and it's uh, it's very difficult you can't expect uh, players to be ready to play five matches uh, you know right off the bat um he, uh, he he did some really good work this week in Washington. Really good. I mean, big big steps forward for him. I think he's leaving very very happy. I was very. I mean, he'll be incredibly gutted that he couldn't play. He couldn't finish off the week, but he'll be really happy with what he's achieved uh, and and looking ahead. And I and I think he's now starting to think about the five set you know situation. Um, maybe it's still a little too early for him. Who knows whether he'll be able to do that? Um, I anticipate he'll give it a go. Uh, at the US Open. But, Andy Murray um, not giving something a go. <laughs> I mean, well, no, he didn't exactly. play at Wimbledon. He just Wimbledon. loves the challenge, doesn't he? Yeah, he didn't play at Wimbledon, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that was a painful decision mm. for him to make. I'm, I think that would have that would have been deep in terms of in the emotions, but it was the it clearly was the right decision because look at him and, and what he's doing. He's thinking long term. He desperately wants to get back uh, to be playing week in week out. And as I say, I think glimpses that maybe that will happen. Yeah, he, uh, he certainly did say as well about this period just being about getting himself primed and ready for the start of next year. Yeah. But, I mean, he, he's kind of a super freak, isn't he, as, as the top four are, isn't they've all done things that we all think 
well, that can't happen, and then they go and do it. And so uh, Andy Murray, he may well surprise us and have a, a deep run at the US Open. We'll soon find out. But, of course, the next tournament on the calendar is the Rogers Cup, one which that Andy Murray has pulled out of. But there's still going to be plenty of star-studded names in Toronto. And our reporter for the Rogers Cup, presented by National Bank, is former tour player Jill Krabis, and she's been speaking to a very important man. Well, I'm sitting in the Players' Lounge, and I'm happy to say that joining me now is Tournament Director of the Rogers Cup, Carl Hale. Carl, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Joel. Um, I'm so happy to be back here at the Rogers Cup. I've played this tournament many times, and for me, it was always excited to come back. It's great to have you as the Tournament Director, because I feel like there's been a lot of good additions to the tournament. But I wanted to start off talking about the longevity of the yeah. tournament. And it's the third longest tournament in the history of the ATP, and that's just a credit to how great this tournament has been in the past. What do you feel like has been a credit to that, and what, what has um, added to that as the lo- for the longevity? Well, we're the third oldest tournament on the tour behind Wimbledon U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. have a deep history here in uh, Toronto and Montreal of running good professional events, and we've grown uh, over the years tremendously, especially in the past 10 years. Um, what we've done is we've tried to kind of break into the the social fabric of Toronto Montreal scene so it's more than a tennis tournament it's an event and it's an entertainment experience so I think uh, that's one of the things we've achieved not just during my time but uh, over the history of the tournament so everybody looks forward in Toronto to the Rogers Cup in the summer and now with Canadians you know like Milos and Dennis and Felix and Jeannie and Vasek and we have a whole list of players that we've never had before so everybody in Canada is really excited for the tournament and cheer on our players. Now you're talking about the entertainment aspect that's been a part of this tournament for so long. I was walking around the grounds today and it's just packed with kids and families. Can you talk a little bit about what this weekend is about? Because it's free for them to come and and just the amount of activities that they have. Yeah, this is our 407 uh, free community weekend. Um, So we have a lot of activation on on the grounds for children. You know, face painting, they can try tennis, lots of other different games for them, and they can watch the top players practice. So we try to get people from the close proximity to Toronto. It's a long weekend here, so people have a lot of time and they're looking for things to do. Uh, We've had an amazing growth in the last three years. Uh, And today out there, you can see on the grounds, it's it's just jam-packed. We're expecting about 15,000 people today. So uh, we're really excited about that. And me personally, it's just great to see so many kids that are under 10 years old that are enjoying themselves, watching some tennis, trying it a little bit, and experiencing a major tennis tournament. Now, you've been the tournament director here now since 2007. Um, when you came in, you obviously had a vision of what the ter- what the tournament wanted to be, the changes that you wanted to make. Ha- has some of that come to fruition, and where do you s- and what else has been added this year in particular? Well, going back to the entertainment experience um, and really trying to penetrate the social fabric of Toronto, we've kind of upped our food and beverage offerings. We've had cel- famous celebrity chefs year over year. We've had Suzer Lee, who's one of the top chefs in the world in the past, and we have several chefs this year. Uh, Which chefs are this year? uh, Craig Harding um, in Toronto is one of the top chefs. Uh, So he's kind of our lead chef this year. And uh, we have several, you know, entertainment acts. Carl Wolf had a a big song, uh, you know, a few years ago. We've had other artists. um, So we've tried to pull in the downtown Toronto scene uptown. Uh, which has worked really well. And also, we've tried to in- ingratiate our players to the scene downtown. So, for example, last night I had Rafa hanging out with Shaquille O'Neal and boxing champion Lennox Lewis. and So it's really become a, a big social 
part of Toronto, and uh, it, it just makes the player and fan experience a little bit more interesting and entertaining. That's great. Yeah, there's so many famous people that are so fascinated by tennis. Mm -hmm. I love to see them like getting involved. I know Wayne Gretzky was in Montreal last year as well. Huge yep. tennis fan. Big fan of Shapovalov. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, we on that note with hockey, we have Sidney Crosby. He's probably the greatest player in this generation. He's coming to the final. So we have a lot of uh, really famous hockey players mm -hmm. um, that are that are coming to the tournament to watch it. Shania Twain's come. A lot of major actors and things like that. So it's nice to see, uh, you know, like people who are at the top of their craft come and enjoy tennis here in Toronto. There have been some other changes mm -hmm. around the grounds as well. Grandstand has gotten bigger. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's now a new subway line that comes to the event. How big are those changes for this tournament this year? Um, they're, they're really, really important to the future of the event. The subway is a game changer for us. Um, it takes 30 minutes from downtown by subway to get here now before... You couldn't, and you'd have to drive, and it would take 45 to an hour. So, you know, as we get the word out, we think over the years you're going to see a lot of people use public transportation, which we're an advocate of anyways. It's good for the environment. So that's a huge, huge uh, change for us this year. But then on the grounds, we've done a lot of different things, um, and we try every year to improve things for the players and for the fans. So for the players, we have a new medical zone. It's brand new. It's one of the best on the tour. There's four private rooms, four massage rooms. You know, six uh, massage tables, private areas for them so they can really have a good care, you know, and enjoy privacy as well. So that's the players love that. They've really talked about it in the first couple of days here. And then on the grounds, our grandstand, we added a thousand seats in a covered area because it's really hot here in the summer and sunny. So, you know, we like to, the fans to be comfortable and have shaded area, more shaded areas. And then we talked about the food offerings we have. Um, there's just a lot of things we're always trying to improve. And also, I mean, we're like I, we mentioned, we're in the player lounge. I haven't been here in a few years, but this area we're in now, I mean, it seems kind of like a spa little area mm -hmm. itself, like a lot of relaxing lounges. And how long has this been here? This we did this the it's first more quiet year. Here. Yeah, the first year yeah. I came, we had this. We upped our, our players' experience, lounge experience. So we have, you know, private haircutting, you know. Um, there, we have a spa area where they can get pedicures, manicures, whatever they want. Uh, and then this side is a quiet zone where some of the players relax before their matches. And you have your computers. They can go check their internet or whatever they want to do. And then on the other side, we have, you know, uh, ping pong table, pool tables, you know, a little bit of food and beverage and our hospitality services. And the ping pong tables kind of really interesting because you know in the past we've had drake out there playing you know ping pong with some of the players and things like that so uh yeah it's a fun players lounge and also just talking a little bit about you mentioned the draw ceremony that mm -hmm. happened yesterday nadal was a part of that looking at the draw now there are, like you mentioned there are a lot of good canadian players uh pospisil shapovalov roundage polanski Yassim, they're all in the main draw what do you feel like um how do you feel about the prospect of the canadian players in this tournament well, we've never been more excited because we have players that actually can win the tournament. You know, Vasek got to the semis a few years ago. Milos got to the finals. Dennis got to the semis. So they've proven in the past that they can compete at this level. And a lot, a lot of them are from Toronto. So we're hoping the home crowd will really cheer them on and push them to victory. And I hate to say we're a little biased, but we're Canadians. So <laughs> we, we want them to do well. We want everybody to do well, but especially them. So the draws actually look very favorable for them. Um, 
You know, they're I think, spread out quite a bit too. Yeah, which is they're nice. spread out quite a bit. Uh, they're winnable matches. Dennis plays Chardy, who he beat at Wimbledon, so that's a pretty good matchup for him. And he's defending semifinal points, so it's a really important tournament for him. Milos plays Gauvin, who hasn't had a great year, and Milos, when healthy, has had a good year, and he'll be uh, Monday night at seven o'clock with a lot of fans behind him. So. We're really excited about it, eagerly anticipating it, and we'll have record crowds this year. And I just want to say congratulations on a packed field in general, too. I mean, we'll be rooting for the Canadians just because we're in Toronto as well, but the field this year is is super packed and exciting to see everyone to want to come to the, the Toronto tournament. Mm-hmm. It's, it's arguably our best player field ever, 19 of the top 20. You know, you got Nadal, the number one player in the world, a French Open champion, a legend. You got Novak, who's right there with him, just won Wimbledon. They're on the opposite side, half of the draw. So that's kind of interesting to see if they make it to the finals. So, yeah, great player field, including the Canadians, of course. And one more Canadian we must mention is Daniel Nestor, who mm-hmm. will be retiring this year. He's playing his 30th Rogers Cup here. You guys are honoring him in the Canadian Hall of Fame mm-hmm. um, tomorrow night, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, just tell us, because you know Daniel very well, a very good friend of his. Um, he's had an unbelievable, I think he's won every Grand Slam and a thousand Masters event and a gold medal. Mm. Um, just your experience with him and, and how much he's meant to Canadian tennis. Yeah, I mean, just, uh, I go back a long way with Daniel, him and his family. Uh, the first thing I think is a great guy. He does a lot of things for the tennis community uh, and doesn't want uh, it to be public, but he's just very helpful to players in the tennis community. Uh, so amazing, amazing guy, good family man. Number two, he's won every slam, every Masters Series and a gold medal. He's the only person in tennis that's done that. So that's kind of interesting. So great accomplishments he's had over the years. Uh, we have, a, you know, he's done a lot of stuff for charity and just a really good person. And these players today wouldn't be here without him. He, he paved the way for these young guys to believe they could be professional tennis players, which we never really had before. So there's a lot of credit owed to him for the success of tennis in Canada at this time. And that's credit to you as well because you helped him start that charity event and also the charity event that you have back home in your home country of Jamaica. So congratulations to oh, you on you. that. Can you just expand on that a little bit just so we can learn a little bit more, more about your particular foundation? Sure. So Daniel and I started a charity event uh, quite a while ago. We did it for 10 years. We raised about $1.2 million for uh, North York General Hospital and actually tennis in Canada. So it was, it was a great experience. We, did, we really enjoyed it. And then from there, I started my own charity, Building Schools in Jamaica. So we've built 19 schools in Jamaica, which we're really proud of, uh, which educate about 5,000 students. Um, and tennis is a big part of that. Serena came down and built a school with us two years ago, and Sloan is going to build a school with us this year. So, you know, if you have the opportunity to give back and help others, it's there's nothing better than doing that. So really proud of it, and uh, tennis is a chills. big part of it. <laughs> you should come. I would love to come. Yeah. How often do you get to go back? I'll, I'll go back like three or four times a year, but we'll build anywhere from two to five schools a year, depending that's on, awesome. on what's going on. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, congratulations to you on that. And also to Daniel, I hope the event goes well tomorrow night. And just um, going back to this tournament, um, you know, continuing to be tournament director, do you have visions for what else to add in the, in the future years to keep this tournament as popular as it is? I mean, there's so many things that, are, that you have to keep your eye on to improve the event. So there's not one particular thing, but all the different areas, it's how do we make it a little bit better, like our medical zone. So we tripled it inside and, you know, refreshed it. The stadium that we built in 2004, 
So, uh, and we don't have a roof, so that's a big goal of ours is to get a, get a roof over stadium court. So we've been working on that, but it'll take some time. So I'd say that's our biggest goal right now. And as far as just the tournament, and Tennis Canada owns a tournament, so all of the funds from this event support tennis in Canada. Uh, so one of the big visions we have is to, to build more indoor courts across the country because we don't have enough accessibility. And with the boom of tennis because of these players, Milos, Dennis, and Felix, the interest is sky high, the highest it's ever been. So we need more courts for the young people to play. So lots of goals and lots of things going on always here at Rogers Cup and Tennis Canada. Carl Hale there with the uh, interview with Jill Krabis. Always great to hear from both Jill and from Carl, of course. Nomi Cavaday sat with myself, Pete Hodges, here. And there's some great early matchups, aren't there, at the Rogers Cup. One that perhaps stands out in particular, fresh from his Wimbledon win, Novak Djokovic against last year's next-gen winner, Hyung Chung. Yes, and... Um I think the main thing about that match, of course, both players uh, playing to a really high standard. Chung up and coming has been achieving some fantastic uh, um, uh, things. I mean, Australian Open was just huge for him. Uh, and uh, But it's the fact that everybody says that Chung plays so much like Novak Djokovic. And everybody's been saying that, but Djokovic hasn't been around to, to really kind of you know get involved in the conversation. But I think that uh, it, it's a really interesting battle that because they do have such similar game styles. Fantastic movement. My word, will that be that match be athletic? <laughs> be extraordinary <laughs> in terms of the court coverage. Um, but they, they, they do play similarly, uh, that's for sure. I don't think they're identical. Um, I don't think that, that Chung has modelled his game on him um, too much um, but uh, yeah interesting to see how Djokovic is going to cope with the hard courts Nomi Cavaday with me here for the podcast any other matchups you like in the first round of the uh, well I always think it's a tournament you can say so many different ways Rogers Cup Toronto Masters Canadian Masters I don't know which way to go but which round which is your pick in terms of the other rounds. Oh, there's, the a, round. there's a couple, actually, that, that stand out for me. I mean, the wild card in uh, Stan Wawrinka taking on the 16th seed, Nick Kyrgios. That could be fun, couldn't it? Um, not sure about Wawrinka, what he's bringing. I mean, pff, no idea what Kyrgios is bringing, to be honest, because he's so up, down, all over the place at the moment. He's had a couple of injury problems himself. Um, could be an amazing match. Um, that, that one uh, j just totally depends on them, really, and what they're going to bring to the table, because they both are not the most consistent of performers. Also, just sitting underneath them in the draw, Diego Schwartzman, the 11th seed, against Kyle Edmund. Edmund obviously playing really well. I think that, that could be a, a really interesting match. So, um, as always with the Masters 1000, there are some uh, some crackers in the first round. Yeah, interesting with Stanford Frinker, isn't it? I mean, he was actually going to qualify the Rogers mm. Cup before he was given a wild card yep. and what, what do you make of that decision does that show you where he is at the moment he's just desperate for match wins because he of course lost early in Washington yeah it, it, it's just it's so hard coming back from from being uh, from being injured because as I say to to get your body back to the physical state it was in when when Vavrinka was was doing well I mean for him particularly um, you've got to win back to back matches you've got to do it week in week out you're talking about three matches minimum to be honest to, to really get uh, uh, you know the benefits physically and really start propelling yourself forwards but if you're not playing well because you're not in that physical shape and, and you haven't had the matches under your belt and you're low on confidence then you just can't get that and you can't replace it there's nothing else you can do you have to get that time on court you have to get the wins under the belt and he's stuck at the moment you know mm. just was really stuck not getting those wins going forward I think it was great that he said he was going to play qualifying I would have liked to have seen it actually I think that, that would have been really interesting um 
uh, um, because then he would get some matches under his belt. And it, it, it's almost, you know, he said he was going to play qualifying. You know, that that's where he was at. And uh, I know he was off the wild card and he's taken it in, in, into the main draw. But I almost think maybe it would have been best to just go get some matches, win a couple of matches. You mean you're desperate for them? Well, we saw. Kane Ishikori, when he first came back this year, played mm. a couple of challenges. Yep. And that's worked out pretty well for him because he's now in a run, he's looking healthy again, looking fit. And you do just wonder, is that an option after the Rogers Cup, perhaps to, to play a challenger even? Because his rankings dropped enough, or is that too much of a blow to a three-time Grand Slam champion in terms of their ego? Yeah, I don't I don't think Vavrinka would do that. Um, I was uh, pleasantly surprised that Nishikori did it, actually. Uh, I don't think Vavrinka would do that. I think he would be more likely to play qualifying in, in these events, um, You know, try and come through a couple of rounds and, and, and get those wins. Um, but I tell you what, you go and win a couple of challenges back to back. That's great match practice. It's great time on court. It all counts. Your level will be improving all the time. Um, but yeah, he, he's a little stuck at the moment. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just slightly fearing for him with um, that situation. Because also, you know, then when you do get to a place where you're feeling good and you're playing well and you're improving, because you're unseeded, you get a really rough draw. And, there's nothing, and then you get stopped again. The momentum gets stopped and it's very, very difficult when you're somebody like Vavrinka, when he was playing his best. That is a culmination of years of week in, week out, winning these matches, winning hundreds and hundreds of matches. Um, and uh, you kind of got to start again. Should be absolutely fascinating. So many questions that will be answered in the next week. You can listen to it here all on ATP Tennis Radio. So that's it for this week's podcast. We hope you can join us for live ball-by-ball -ball commentary of the Rogers Cup presented by National Bank. And you can access the commentary via the listen button on the ATP World Tour website through the TuneIn Radio app and website or via the Tennis TV website and app as a free-to-listen option. But from Naomi Cavaday and myself, Pete Rogers, goodbye and enjoy the Rogers Cup. <laughs>